Hey, thanks for joining us for Pact. I'm the P, Peter Cawthon, the lovely Miss Astronaut Cowboy Doctor, Master of Science here is the ACD. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe to us on our new YouTube channel, Spotify, or your favorite podcast service. Also, leave us a glowing review on Audible or Apple Podcasts especially. Uh, help us keep the lights on by becoming a patron at patreon.com slash petercoffin. Your monthly support gets you into the Discord, uh, gets you exclusive content, and you see some content before everyone else. We've got also fantastic packed merch. Finally, please tell your friends. We rely so big on word of mouth. So, so big. We stream 6 p.m. Eastern Standard every Saturday. Thanks a ton for tuning in. So. India Walton won the... The, the Democratic primary for Buffalo, New York mayor, which very heavily Democratic. Yeah, safe blue. City, safe blue. So that basically means that she's going to be the mayor. Um, this woman is a self-identifying socialist. And the way that she describes socialism in her you know, acceptance speeches and people that have been interviewing with her is something that kind of piqued our interest as something that can be illustrative and demonstrating what socialism is, what socialism isn't, and how that relates to Marxist theory, as well as implementation of the theoretical underpinning that we have. So maybe we should tee up that video. Yeah, let's, let's get that clip going. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> the, the entire intent of this campaign is to draw down power and resources to the ground level and, and to the hands of the people. And when we think about socialism, um, you know, we're perfectly fine with socialism for the rich. Uh, we will bail out Wall Street and banks and give a billion dollars in tax incentives to one of the richest people in the world to build an empty Tesla factory in South Buffalo. And when it comes to providing the resources that working families need to thrive, uh, socialism becomes scary at that point. So I'm, I'm very proud to be a democratic socialist. I am proud to have the support of Buffalo DSA and National DSA. Uh, I received a call from Congresswoman AOC this evening. And I'm, I'm just excited to be uh, a part of this movement that is ushering progressive politics into Buffalo. Being the third poorest mid-sized city in this country, we should be considering how we begin to eradicate concentrated poverty and disadvantage. And democratic socialist leanings are a big step in getting us there. So, yeah. obviously the first thing that happens is somebody says, would you consider yourself a socialist? She goes, absolutely. And then Emphatically. I just like all the rad libs just retweeting this and circulating this and being like, the speed with which this woman says absolutely when asked if she's the socialist. Oh my God. I'm coming. They don't write the words I'm coming in these tweets either, but like, I think it's heavily implied. Yeah, it is. Um, But so, so people are getting excited about this and that there's this woman among progressive or self-identifying progressives self-identifying socialist, democratic mm -hmm. socialist, probably even some self-IDing communists on uh, YouTube, or most definitely yes, because I see 
them tweeting about this and circulating it, you can probably guess the type of person who's doing that. Some people who might serve yeah. imperialism. <laughs> yeah, some people who might serve imperialism. Um, but people are getting excited about this. She says uh, the point of her campaign is to draw down power and resources into the hands of the people and then goes on about how there's a socialism for the rich, which includes bailouts and payouts as well as tax incentives. So I think that it's really important to understand what she kind of puts forward as socialism here in doing this little speech. It's uh, you getting money from the government. Yeah. Getting stuff from power. Mm hmm. So before we set out, I'm saying that that's not what socialism is. No. There are basic building blocks for what socialism is that are important to put forward and to build a program that is intended towards those goals. However, you will find that people who put out staunch definitions of socialism uh, tend to be wrong. And or they condemn every single socialist effort that has happened or that is happening in the globe. I'm just preempting that because I know that there are going to be people who are watching the podcast or listening to the podcast who are like, oh, so you're going to tell us what socialism is, eh? You don't get to tell us what socialism is. Yeah. That's true. We don't get to define that. But you also don't. Like, there's a historical progression that defines these types of things. Uh I mean, I think that the most egregious defining point of socialism that Walton makes is that we have we're OK with socialism for the rich in this country. What that means is that her definition of socialism is when the government subsidizes you. Yeah. When you're a bank that's getting bailed out, when you're a big business that's getting bailed out. Or tax incentives. Or, or yeah. <laughs> tax incentives are socialism. Socialism is tax incentives. And this phrase, socialism for the rich, has become so popularized, one, by Bernie Sanders and, and how his kind of historical embedment, and he's not that old, but like in understanding the New Deal and how it was very beneficial towards like World War II veterans coming back if they were white and kind of having this like social safety net mm -hmm. for middle class white people. And then that kind of being extended in the 1970s and 80s to like large corporate entities and large banking entities and supporting finance capital. He obviously would not put it in that way. But that is where that kind of idea of socialism for the rich or just support by the government for the rich is what this country has. But we need socialism for everybody, which obviously completely obfuscates what socialism actually is. Maybe not intentionally. I mean, Bernie Sanders probably isn't intentionally, or at least at, for the most part, isn't intentionally obscuring right. what socialism is. But what it does is it completely blurs the class contradiction and the class struggle that underpins our society. Which is why it's important to go by a Marxist definition of socialism, which right. in the Communist Manifesto, Marx wrote, the proletariat will use its political supremacy. This would be after a revolution, presumably to wrest, by degree, all capital from the bourgeoisie to centralize all instruments of production in the hands of the state, i.e. of the proletariat organized as the ruling class, important, and to increase the total productive forces as rapidly as possible. So, embedded in this definition is class. 
Socialism, by Marx and Engels' definition, Lenin's definition, is a lower stage of communism in which the state still exists and the proletariat is organized as the ruling class. So there is still a bourgeoisie. They do still own things. But the point is to proletarianize the bourgeoisie and therefore abolish class. Well, socialism is technically kind of this lower stage of communism that's a, a transitory state to the ultimate goal of the higher stage of communism, which is a stateless class of society. That's what the fuck it is. It's goals. So understanding that there isn't like a set image of socialism that you can point to and say, this is what socialism looks like. This is what it will look like in the United States of America. A, according to Lenin, it's going to look different in, in every country. Like a revolution will happen differently. The conditions uh, by which the proletarian ruling class uh, abolishes the bourgeoisie will play out differently, et cetera, et cetera. You can't just come up with an image of what socialism is and say, we're going to do that. That's utopian socialism. And it crosses in with what this type of definition of socialism is, because these people, they just basically think that implementing socialism is a matter of convincing enough people. This is a quote from Socialism, Utopian and Scientific by Frederick Engels. This outlines exactly what utopian socialism or just utopian thinking is. This historical situation also dominated the founders of socialism to the crude conditions of capitalistic production and the crude class conditions correspond crude theories. The solution of the social problems, which as yet lay hidden in undeveloped economic conditions, the utopians attempted to evolve out of the human brain. Society presented nothing but wrongs. To remove these was the task of reason. It was necessary then to discover a new and more perfect system of social order to impose upon society from without, by propaganda, and, wherever it was possible, by an example of model experiments. These new social systems were foredoomed as utopian. The more completely they were worked out in detail, the more they could not avoid drifting off into pure fantasy. What, th what this means, and, and there are, are utopian socialists that Engels mm -hmm. describes in this text, very well-intentioned people who want to remediate the inequities of their time, but doing so intellectually, kind of all in, in the abstract and, you know, without consideration of the material realities of their specific point and place and time and history. Um, it, it's a non-dialectical, non-historical way of sort of intellectualizing about socialism confined by th formal thought um, while ignoring the society in motion that we talked about based on historical conditions that are ever-changing without ceasing. I have another quote from Socialism Utopian Scientific that dovetails very nicely with that. The utopian's mode of thought has for a long time governed the socialist ideas of the 19th century and still governs some of them. Until very recently, all French and English socialists did homage to it. The earlier German communism, including that of Weitling, has the same school. This is where you need to listen. To all these people, socialism is the expression of absolute truth, reason, and justice, and has only to be discovered to conquer all the world by virtue of its own power. And as an absolute truth is independent of time, space, and of the historical development of man, 
It is a mere accident when and where it is discovered. With all of this, absolute truth, reason, and justice are different with the founder of each different school. What this is saying, and, and what Engels is saying here, is that utopian socialists kind of, they almost have this great man theory of They do, absolutely. Of like, you know, socialism will come about when the great truth understander logs on <laughs> and figures out what socialism is and then just wills everybody <laughs> to go with it. That's what utopian socialism it's, is. It's what it is. And, and that's what all these fucking people I'm bred to are... Or maybe not. I mean, some of them have kind of just defaulted to being libs. But the individuals Vosh. that still, like, say that they're socialist or communist, that's what they do. I mean, Vosh still they... says that, that, that it's bad. Right. And, and it it's all about being the, the truth understander. Yeah, that it's gets about, and I get convinces... socialism better than you get it. Yeah, and I'm going to convince everybody to do it, and that's how socialism is going to happen. We're going to deprogram those Nazis, and then we're going to have this <laughs> army of people who just want my version of socialism, so that version is going to happen. The market will respond. Yeah, yeah. And that's really what it is at the core, too. It's market logic. It is. It's, it's marketing. It's thinking that demand is what dictates supply, blah, blah, blah. And as each one's special kind of absolute truth and justice is, again, conditioned by his subjective understanding, his conditions of existence, the measure of his knowledge and his intellectual training, there is no other ending possible in this conflict of absolute truths than that they will become mutually exclusive of one another. Hence... From this nothing could come but a kind of eclectic average socialism, which, as a matter of fact, has up to the present time dominated the minds of most socialist workers in France and England. Hence, a mishmash allowing of the most manifold shades of opinion, a mishmash of such critical statements, economic theories, pictures of future society by the founders of different sects, as excite a minimum of opposition, a mishmash which is the more easily brewed and more definite sharp edges of the individual constituents are rubbed down in the stream of debate like rounded pebbles in a brook. To make a science of socialism, it had first to be placed upon a real basis. And that goes back to exactly what we were saying about the, the great truth understanders logging on and polishing their intellectualized version of what socialism is and further and further abstracting that mm -hmm. from the reality within which it has to take place in. It has to take place in a society. Socialism doesn't matter if it's not being implemented. Exactly. Oof, that's, <laughs> yes, 100%. So the, the argument that you'll get from individuals who are sort of advocating for or defending these politicians are like, politicians don't have to know mm. the holy books of theory and like you're asking too much whatever um whereas when we see this socialism for the rich rhetoric or this democratic socialism or whatever manifest in electoral politics we have seen especially like over the past less than a decade or so where this ends up it's indicative of not having a strong theoretical underpinning and when you don't have that where do you end up you end up in liberalism mm -hmm. that's what you do and that's that's why these these individuals aren't even subscribing to a utopian socialistic idea because they their analysis isn't even one that is coherent of socialism. They just think of socialism as when the government does things and then that leads towards liberal projects that Absolutely. are ineffective in remediating inequities and definitely don't get at the underlying crux 
of the class antagonism between the ruling class and the working class that underpins that inequity in the United States and globally on an imperial level. If they can at least articulate the idea of class from a perspective of owning the means of production or selling labor to those who own the means of production or some modern equivalent of those things. If they can't do that, then it doesn't even matter whether it's from the holy books or not. Like You need that class distinction in order to do anything which isn't liberalism. Right. That needs to be at the foundation of your understanding or of any, I don't even want to say this, but of any policy making. And the reason I don't want to say that is because that class antagonism is never going to underpin the foundation of any policy making. No, exactly. Electoral politics is never going to do this. That's what I was just talking about with State and Rev and how this rhetoric is indicative of how these well-meaning and even maybe formerly like full-on Marxist identifying socialists, maybe Bernie Sanders was that, I don't know. Maybe AOC was that. If she was, she never read. Um, but um, how these people are immediately neutralized by the language of the American electorate. And whatever utopian thinking that you have, you're coming from this position that you need to change minds need to change people's opinions. Walton, Sanders, they're not even there. No. They're no, even, they're social democrats. Right. They're, they're pre-utopian socialists. Like, they, they don't even have the conceptualization of, like, class antagonism between the ruling class and the working class, like, constituting the economic base of yeah. society. They, they don't agree. even have that. Socialism to them is still the government doing things for you. But it is still also utopian thinking because they think it's just basically about willing equity into existence exactly. through formal exactly. thought and exactly. intellect. Exactly. They are promising what one might characterize as a utopian vision, which is an, an end game with specific results that people get invested in and probably doesn't happen because they don't really have a program to get there. Even so, it is still a utopian vision. It is still the idea of just putting forward a result and convincing people uh, in their minds that this is what we should do, reasoning it into existence. That's how you would dichotomize utopian and scientific. Thinking. That kind mm -hmm. of mainstream conceptualization of socialism comes from this and everybody mm -hmm. thinking mm -hmm. about it in mm -hmm. this utopian way that can just be willed into existence on the moral and intellectual basis of society and the individuals that comprise it. Um, rather than being a change in economic base that emerges from the historical material conditions of a time. The, the way that it manifests itself is considered historically and dialectically. Now, what we mean by historically is that at every specific point in time and in place and space, at any given point, that's going to be different. And that's where dialectics comes in and mm -hmm. things are always in motion and constant flux. And the reason that that's so unappealing to you and other people is because it contradicts what we typically think of when we're thinking about formal thought and formal logic. Mm -hmm. And so because of that constant flux and movement and how history works and how a changing society works, all interacting with other given points in space and time and place and time that is going to affect materially how communist or how communism manifests itself or i should probably say how socialism manifests itself because you can't really have communism in an isolated 
way when other societies are not like that. That's why we think of it as like this stage-like process. To set up the dialectic, the dynamic that you were just talking about, there's a distinction that is drawn in socialism, utopian, and scientific that's really important. It's about analytical thinking that contrasts itself with dialectics. Real natural science dates from about the second half of the 15th century, and thence onward, it had advanced with constantly increasing rapidity. This analysis of nature into its individual parts, the grouping of different natural processes and objects in definite classes, the study of the internal anatomy of organized bodies in their manifold forms, these were the fundamental conditions of the gigantic strides in our knowledge of nature that have been made during the last 400 years. But this method of work has also left us a legacy of the habit of observing natural objects and processes in isolation. Apart from their connection with the vast whole of observing them in repose, not in motion, as constraints, not as essentially variables, in their death, not in their life. And when this way of looking at things was transferred by Bacon and Locke from natural science to philosophy, it begot the narrow metaphysical mode of thought peculiar to the last century. To the metaphysician, things and their mental reflexes, ideas, are isolated, are to be considered one after the another, apart from each other, are objects of investigation that are fixed, rigid, and given once and for all. He thinks an absolutely irreconcilable antithesis. His communication is yea, yea, nay, nay, for whatsoever is more than these cometh of evil. For him, a thing either exists or does not exist. A thing cannot the same time be itself and something else. Positive and negative absolutely exclude one another. Cause and effect stand in rigid antithesis one or the other. At first sight, this mode of thinking seems to us very luminous because it is that of so-called common sense. Only sound common sense, respectable fellow that he is. <laughs> Fucking Ingles. <laughs> That's funny. Only sound common sense, respectable fellow that he is. In the homely realm of his own four walls, has very wonderful adventures directly. He ventures out into the wide world of research. And the metaphysical mode of thought, justifiable and necessary as it is, in a number of domains whose extent varies according to the nature of the particular object of investigation, sooner or later reaches a limit, beyond which it becomes one-sided, restricted, abstract, lost in insoluble contradictions. In the contemplation of individual things, it forgets the connection between them. In the contemplation of their existence, it forgets the beginning and end of that existence, of their repose. It forgets their motion. It cannot see the woods for the trees. Basically, uh, the serial defense Reynolds v. Reynolds, or Mac is saying that uh, the scientist looks like a bitch when the next scientist moves forward. <laughs> That's goddamn great. I mean, it, it kind of is, it but kind, like for real. Yeah. Um, but but more focusing on what I was talking about before in, in these things, when we're thinking historically, dialectically, we're not only thinking historically at a specific given point in time, in a place where everything in history has culminated up to this point to create what that is spatially temporally what is happening historically then we also consider the dialect and those things are constantly in motion and moving in flux and that's in contrast to what we're thinking about in formal metaphysics and thought mm -hmm. then you add in the component um that that 
entity or a specific phenomenon in a specific place in history and time and place being constantly in motion is also interacting with everything around it that is also constantly in motion mm -hmm. and contingent on that specific historical place and time and space. Which, in terms of thinking about formal thought, if you're used to thinking in that way, is something that's really overwhelming to think about from a causal position and then applying that to how socialism will manifest itself in societies and resolving these class antagonisms that we're talking about. Or even just these, again, social democratic reforms that all they think needs to happen is they'll implement this one policy and things will start getting better. Right, right, exactly. And, and that's another reason why in the, the United States electorate that's contingent on capital will never, ever be able to address these class antagonisms because they address things as if they're in isolation. In the same way that, like, any person online talking about class or thinking that they're talking about class and ideology dichotomizes those things as if they're not constantly interacting with one another. Mm -hmm. um, well, and that's why we repeatedly say here, you got to talk about class and you got to have a critique of ideology. And if you don't have those things, you're not fucking going anywhere. Mm -hmm. That is also why simply being like against like some certain specific form of bigotry is never going to solve yeah. the problems at the core of that bigotry. You can't address it without understanding that it's connected to the society, which you can begin to sort out those contradictions by having an analysis of class. Yeah. Watching India Walton, you know, champion her socialist identity and mm -hmm. the liberals jizzing their pants over it. And then her describing socialism as something that is completely dissociated from class antagonism between the working and ruling class. Um, even though saying that, like, her, her political program is to take from the top and, and give it to the people... It totally removes Com class because the top and the bottom have to exist for the top to be giving to the bottom. Right. And and the relationship to means of production has to be addressed in order to understand the unequal distribution of resources. Or not even unequal distribution of resources, but unequal compensation for labor that is put in to society. The socialism for the rich rhetoric is so effective in obscuring the actual class contradiction that underpins the economic base in a U.S. capitalistic society. So the big response that we get for this type of thing is like, well, like, why is it so egregious and bad um, that that phrase socialism for the rich is is tossed around by, you know, self-identifying democratic socialists or socialist politicians um, it turns people on to socialism. It gets people thinking more progressively. It, it moves people further left. Um, it's useful rhetoric for it, moving people left. Right. It's useful rhetoric within the confines of what is acceptable for the Democratic Party, whether intentional or not. I, I actually, I would imagine that India Walton and even Bernie Sanders are like, think that they're doing a really good thing for Absolutely. working class people by bringing attention to socialism and saying that um but they're hiding the yeah. the contradictions and the antagonisms that are 
perpetuating the inequity that we see and and not only perpetuating but widening the inequity that we see between the bourgeoisie and the proletariat or the working class and the ruling class you're deviating their path away from understanding class society which is also why uh the capitalistic base the ones that own the media the ones that own all of the institutions the capitalist class just why that kind of rhetoric while they don't love it they don't kill everybody who's saying it right why do you think that they were trying to kill like for instance castro was it because he was just an evil man who <laughs> hurt so many people but it, <laughs> that's not why they tried to kill him they tried to kill him because he was making the distinction of classes and actively attempting to proletarianize the state and again to bring in the dialectic though it is very possible that in cuba Bad things have also happened. Yeah. While the literacy rate went through the roof, healthcare. while health care is provided to all, while um, the state produces more doctors than nearly any other state in the Western Hemisphere. Why they have their, their own highly effective vaccine that they've developed. Like, it's that can be true. And they can also have like egregious things that have happened in their country. Like, stopping all of the capitalists in cuba from having slaves like yeah. that's one of the terrible things that they did and that's why having a che guevara shirt is a bad thing oh my god that fucking, <laughs> that fucking... one day at a time show <laughs> I just, every time i think of castro i think of the the new magic school bus. absolutely Wait, that but... was partly why i brought up castro was to get you to say that there's this this tweet like when the new season of the new Magic School Bus came out, which our kids really like, but it's like, what the fuck did they do to my best man, Carlos? <laughs> and they show like what the old Carlos looks like and what the new one looks like. And this person quote tweeted it and said like, new Carlos looks like he's going to be like, hey, I'm from Miami and I'm Cuban, man. Castro is evil. <laughs> <laughs> and when you look at what the kid looks like, it's... It's really funny because he's just like this very like squeaky clean like cartoon kid. I've gotten out everything I intended to. And, and as we said before, Walton and Sanders and these just AOC, any of these people identifying as socialist aren't even at the stage of like even utopian socialist thinking when they're actually acknowledging these class antagonisms. But the rhetoric that they're using obscures even that and still kind of promotes this willing of intellectualized equality into existence um constrained by formal thought um rather than thinking historically in as a society in motion as socialism will be able to manifest itself that's all for today thanks again for watching this is packed I'm Peter. This is Miss Astronaut Cowboy Doctor. To help us out, click like, follow, subscribe, whatever. Leave us five-star reviews on Apple Podcasts and Audible. To support us, become a patron at patreon.com slash Thanks so much, guys. We'll see you later.